0: Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I am Eralda Lameborshi, your host for this episode. And today I am speaking with my dear friend and brilliant academic, Marta Pushan-Oliva, whose book, Narrative Reliability, Racial Conflicts, and Ideology in the Modern Novel, was published by Rutledge in their Literary Criticism and Cultural Theory series. Marta is Ramon Cayal Senior Researcher at the University of the Balerian Islands in Spain. She has worked at the University of Pompeu Fabra, Harvard University, the Universitat de Barcelona, and the Universitat Oberta de Catalunya. Marta has conducted research periods at New York University, Princeton University, the University of Chicago, and Harvard University. This last one was a Marie Sklodowska-Curie outgoing fellowship from the European Commission. She is a specialist in comparative literature, especially in the fields of narrative theory, comparative racial studies, ecocriticism, and global literary studies. She has published various articles on these topics in journals like Poetics Today, Studies in the Novel, English Studies, Literal, Journal of Global History, and the Journal of World Literature. Her book, as I mentioned earlier, narrative reliability, racial conflicts, and ideology in the modern novel, published by Rutledge, bridges narrative theory with a constitution of racial ideologies. Currently, she works on the global novel in the I plus D project, co-directed with Neos Ruche, the novel as a global platform, poetic challenges, and cross-border circulation, for the last few years, she has been working on global environments in literature, especially the ocean, studying environmental criminality at sea in contemporary literary and film narratives. She is a member of the research group Contemporary Literature, Comparative Studies, and Theory. It is such a pleasure to be able to talk with you, Marta, and thank you so much for spending this time with me.
1: Thank you, Eralda, for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about it and for your generous reading.
0: (laughs) So um, I wanted to start by asking about the story or the origin of the book. Uh, What was the initial idea that transformed to the book we now hold? How did that seed of an idea develop into this finished project?
1: (sighs) So um, I got very interested about uh, the narrative technique of unreliability uh, by reading Faulkner's Absalom Absalom. And I was very focused on uh, language and form. I was studying that in my master thesis in Spain. And it was only... um, when I started investigating about it, that I realized um that I was never taught about the racial context um in the u s that was contemporary to faulkner, and then uh, when I started reading his um, non-fiction texts and essays. I realized that all that he was talking about was about the racial context. So I realized that even if for me it seemed that form and unreliability was the most important part of the book, right? It really wasn't. <laughs> so, and then I started asking myself why, why um, that was so, and and how and how where these two important elements connected. So I decided to write a dissertation on that book and... Uh, a parallel phenomenon that I could see happening in in, in Conrad's Lord Jim. And then I I started detecting that, in fact, narrative reliability was being used in several contemporary novels to discuss uh, complicated ideological conflicts, and in that case, racial ones. And then that's how I ended up uh, writing a dissertation on Conrad's Lord Jim and Faulkner's Absalom Absalom but thinking about a number of novels that were doing so uh, which I finally ended up developing um, in my post-dissertation uh, project which was this book.
0: Right um, so it's it's a long long journey to get here and I'm just uh really glad that the book is here. I think it's absolutely brilliant and it um it it creates some really important interventions in narrative theory but also you know talking about um, the historical underpinnings of the racial politics in in the in the literature. And so I wanted to start uh with talking mainly about the theoretical framework that you build here uh, in the book, and ask a question about uh, some of the remarks that you make in the introduction, which is really wonderful to ground the reader in in those theoretical foundations of the book and how um, those those theories inform your analysis in the case studies. Um, and I was specifically looking. Um, At this one passage, which I will read because I don't think that my paraphrasing would be better phrased than what you did (laughs) here in the book. But um, you write that this book focuses on the intertwined relationship between narrative reliability and racial conflicts and ideologies. It argues that the problem of reliability in narrative fiction often makes use of the problem of reliability in historical discourse, and that we need to examine a work of fiction's historical context in order to comprehend technical modulations of narrative reliability. Can you speak a little more on the idea of enactment of racial conflict that shows elsewhere in the in the introduction as a tool to experiment with narrative reliability? And maybe, you know, you can also illustrate this with examples from the novels that you analyze in the book. Um, sure. Uh, I think um, that when we
1: are focusing on narrative reliability and especially unreliability, which is the technique that has been more studied, um, we forget that this is a rhetorical technique that is happening elsewhere, everywhere, and that in fact any political discourse is um, relying on that axis of credibility or that principle of credibility and therefore when we uh look at ideologies and especially like racial ideologies where which are clearly um constructing a specific view which many times very unstable um basis um this issue of credibility is um very, very um, at the core of those ideologies, right? And and for example, I, I will give a brief example, but for example, the idea of um, the mulatto, for example, that um, is a figure that appears in the census in the United States, um, but all of a sudden is abolished from the census in, in 1920. And... As a whole ideological construct is buttressing the need or end existence of a mulatto prior to 1920. And after that, because there are mulattos will be assimilated into this uh, black race in the division between white and black races in the segregation, established by the segregation, then the idea of the mulatto all of a sudden disappears. It doesn't disappear, of course, but it legally disappears. And therefore, you. this is an example of how you will have a discourse, a political and legal and social discourse that is going to be constructed in one way or another, appealing to a credibility that all of a sudden changes because the census changes. So that is an example of how you need to um, provide a special reliability in politics. And this appears, for example, especially... In Absalom, Absalom, but also in James Walden Johnson, the autobiography of an ex-coloured man, which is another of my examples.
0: Um, thank you. That that really clarifies a lot. And I think the example of the mulatto that that you provided is um, such an apt one to illustrate your idea of. And I and I really like this phrase that that you mentioned, the excess of cr- credibility or principle of credibility. Um, well, and 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 we'll we'll continue to talk about it as as I sort of go through some of the other questions. Um, so I found your discussion on historicizing uh, narrative theory very compelling, um, as especially as it intervenes in the more dominant posture of conflating historiography and fiction. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little more at length on why you think that this intervention is necessary. And I think this connects to your previous answer, of course, um, and and what is responding to. And I think the example um, that you just provided Perhaps responds to that or to this question. But more importantly, I was wondering if you can discuss your approach as one that's closer to Marxist postcolonial and cultural perspectives on literature. <laughs> Yeah, sure.
1: I think that um, you're right to think that uh, the idea of historicizing narrative theory is something that is coming out lately in the field of narratology Um, through especially work, uh, the work of of authors like Greta Olson or Sarah Copland, for example, um, who are, or Stephanie Bersen, who are working with the idea that you cannot divorce politics and history from narrative strategies, uh, no matter how much you want to focus on language, because finally language is not separable from meaning and language is used for providing meaning. So part of the problem of narratology as a field has been historically that it's become very abstract and very against I would say in many occasions against history or neglecting history and by history I I mean like a history in a broad sense, including also, of course, all kinds of cultural studies or um, political perspectives or economic perspectives or ideolo- any kind of ideological perspectives, right? I think that is, of course, as you say, um, an, uh, a, an, a perspective that very much uh, comes from Marxist, as you say, in post-colonial studies um, in in many ways, I've always felt closer to Marxist studies rather than postcolonial, even if uh, postcolonial studies have shaped many of my perspectives. But I, what I, what I mean by this is that what I've tried to do in this book, and what I mean by historicizing narrative theory, is focusing and investigating context, so not staying. At the discourse level, which is very interesting, very important to understand how language works and how ideologies work, but also you need to understand what is the context in which ideologies operate, and therefore, uh, to follow my earlier example, um, it's the idea of the mulatto in the United States, um, for example, in the 1920s, has nothing to do with the idea of the half-case in the British Empire in the, in the late 19th century. Um, so why? Because the, the stereotype has been built in a special way that it helps um, perform certain political actions uh, and therefore um, that um, really makes the context relevant. Every racial conflict that I study in this in this book is using certain stereotypes that have been seen from sometimes postcolonial studies or books that stay at the abstract level, Uh, as some um, stereotypes that work more similarly than they do in their actual context and than they do in the specific novels. And so when I mean historicizing, I mean really looking, and it's a lot of effort in that sense, but looking at what happens in that historical context and how that stereotype is being used at a certain moment, right? And, 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 And I think that's what we need, even if it's... A lot of effort. It's 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 part of what get, makes i oh makes sense of the ideologies and makes us understand how the ideologies are operating um, for every case.
0: Yeah. Um. I and so since we are on the on this idea of stereotype. You stated that stereotype performs political actions, which I I really love that formulation, and and your discussion on the notion of stereotype in the book itself, where you invoke Toni Morrison, uh, where she states that uh, stereotypes are a form of narrative economy, um, and I mean it, it ties so so beautifully with you know this idea of excess of credibility stereotypes as um, as credible. Uh, signs or, or or constructions or constructs that uh, tell a story by virtue of of, um, of the narrative that they provide here. And so, um, could you extend a little bit your um, discussion which you just started on, you know, this idea of stereotypes and how they figure in your work theoretically, but also in terms of how they show up and shape narratives in the novels that you have selected to discuss in the book.
1: Sure, I think that it is very the the idea of the stereotype as um, a form that it's not in fact fixed or like an image, but it's something that is the build that tells a story. Um, Is what Toni Morrison means by saying that the. The stereotypes are a form of economy in, in 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 technical terms because you introduce into the narrative the stereotype and then you don't need to say uh, uh, a lot of things that that are presumed by the legacy or the way in what in in which that stereotype has been constructed. So um, then that helps the narrative to move forward in a certain way, or it helps this kind of narratives that I'm looking at, which are are, uh, narratives that include a lot of gaps, a lot of enigmas, a lot of uncertainties, to fill those gaps. And we can talk about this later. But um, what the stereotype is doing is guiding the narrative towards a certain point, thanks to the ways in which that stereotype in that specific racial conflict at the moment in which at least the book is being produced, um, is asking the reader to fill in um, so that to fill those gaps. And I think in that sense, we haven't looked enough the ways the narratives that every specific stereotype is telling for each of the novels we're looking at. And I think that is a very interesting exercise that shows how stereotypes are finally narrative forms and how they are perpetuating in a way by making those assumptions and feeling those silences, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah um and I I also wonder too you know cuz you, as you say that stereotypes are narratives and they are not fixed right that they are that they are shifting and changing and they are getting um and they reflect perhaps shifts cultural shifts as well um I also wonder if you know, the, the the nature sort of this protein nature of the narratives um also mirrors the, the, the narratives with gaps and enigmas in the sense that if, for instance, we had a, narr- uh, a stereotype, let's say three decades ago, um, that now doesn't necessarily apply or doesn't necessarily hold the same story that it might have three decades ago, that in some ways it might be um, considered to be non-threatening or, non, uh, or, or, or as it, it doesn't contribute anything discursively to the current moment. It seems to me that part of what you're arguing is that regardless of what the narrative of a stereotype is right now, it's important to actually link it to the narrative that it held in that specific historical context where it was birthed. Yes,
1: totally so. Mm-hmm. And, and I can provide here one of the examples I found yes. with that, which is the, the, the case of the English gentleman in, in conrad's Lord Jim. This stereotype is especially interesting in the way you're pointing out. First, for two reasons. First, because it's not a stereotype that has perpetuated to our present moment in a clear way. And second, because since this a whiteness stereotype, which of course, like studies of whiteness has have helped me, like starting with Toni Morrison, has have helped us very much to identify stereotypes that we don't feel there are stereotypes, but they are stereotypes as well the english gentleman is a white white man stereotype that is purposely being constructed especially um during the 19th century but uh with a lot of particularities uh, after uh 18 the 1870s when um there is sort of um uh uh, a view that the British Empire needs more colo- what they called colonial officers to be sent to this increasing and very spread out empire and with a lot of. Colonial outposts, especially in Asia. And they needed people who would follow instructions and who would sort of understand very well what were their what was their figure and their and their function and what they were representing. In, uh, because they were sending a, a small number of people. Uh, to each post and therefore uh, the model, the informal uh, um, imperialist model of the British needed very strong um, not personalities, but but very fitting personalities that, that would hold the, the empire together. And therefore, they created this stereotype of the English gentleman uh, with all these attributes that were even part of the exams that they had to pass, um, which were very morally uh, structured. Um, and therefore, when we read Lord Jim today, even if this stereotype is there Uh, and and the criticism and the uncertainty of how much of this character that is called Jim that is central in the novel is or is not fitting to the stereotype of the English gentleman for which he has been instructed and committed to perform. Um, It's the whole... Um, question of the of the book and how much the ways in which the empire is projecting itself through this English gentleman um, fits with the reality of the empire and, and, and what happens in the specific uh, Malayan context here for this novel. So now when we read this novel, because the imperial English gentleman is not there anymore as a as a ideological need we probably miss it as part of what drives the narrative in such a strong way this does not mean that we cannot read this book now of course we can but all that all that narrative that the that was being questioned and interrogated it's partly lost for us now if we don't go back to the historical context.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also sense that there is uh, an analysis of scale here, right? We, we do have the, the the more large-scale post-colonial analysis that we have on empire, etc. Uh, but it seems to me that, especially in relation to Conrad's Lord Jim, that your analysis sort of Burrows in into this very specific, uh, and I and I say small scale, or probably the be- the better word would be more a cellular almost uh, analysis of this one specific construction of the English gentleman and how that discursively represents the empire, uh, which I think. Um, well, it's, it's, it's really uh, effective, I feel, especially in terms of its connection to the idea of narrative reliability, um, which you reframe as the problem of narrative reliability. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more on this specific refl- reframe um, and where you analyze reliability as a principle of narrative discourse.
1: Uh, I think um, what happens here, at least in the field of narratology, is that narrative unreliability has been very finely discussed and um, since the late nineteen nineties, and a very um, so technically in a very detailed way, and I think that is fascinating. Um, but with the problem that I found, and this is the, probably the most important contribution of this book, at least from my point of view, is the fact that because there are many voices, let's say, um, that do not fit a clear unreliability, we have left them out of the discussion of how they build, uh um, I would say like distrust in the novel, so or problematize the credibility in the novel. So all the cases that I review here, which are which are, um, Absalom, Absalom, Conrad's Lord Jim, James Weldon Johnson's The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man. Albert Camus L'Etranger, and Alejo Carpentier, El Reino de Este Mundo, The Kingdom of This World, all these novels would not fit into any discussion of unreliability. However, you could argue that they have unreliable voices. And that happens because they stand in uncertainty. They stand... In ambivalence. They are credible to a certain point. They are dubious or questionable to a great extent. So, because they don't pronounce themselves as clearly unreliable, we haven't discussed them in terms of how they built or interrogate reliability. So, from that re- reflection, I started thinking that we had not got into the core of the problem, which was not reliable or unreliable, but was uh, specifically the problem of how you built credibility, which might mean that to build distrust or to build trust, but it's a problem. The problem is how you build this reliability and how you built in that problem of of reliability, how you uh, interrogate it, because um, this is something that that doesn't have to, to, to mean it's true or not true. It's not a question of true or false. It's a question of how much you get your reader or your listener, not only in fiction, to believe you. It's a question of belief is a question of trust. And therefore, we haven't examined that as a problem and a principle in fiction. I think that reliability is a principle in in any kind of narrative, fictional and non-fictional, that we haven't addressed as such. And that Because we have only studied this division, we have left many of these interesting novels that explore how we create this reliability and how we deal with the problem of this reliability in discourse. Um, And that's how we reframe this as the problem of narrative reliability. Not meaning reliability as something you feel it's credible, but as a Principle that can be modulated in many, many, many different ways. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, um, I, I was wondering just as a follow up to your to your uh, discussion just now on the problem of reliability, which I think it's such a important reframe of, and, and especially as it uh, it seeks to or whether it seeks to or not is irrelevant, but rather the effect is such that You know, these reliability and unreliability as pitted against one another is not so much the issue. It's how uh, we determine or how we build that trust with the reader or the novels, rather, build the trust with the reader, which I think is a very different question Um, that's really important, especially in connection to your third chapter, which is the one on William Faulkner's Absalom Absalom entitled Degrees. Of reliability, misgenation, and the New South Creed in William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, and so you locate the historical conflict, uh, you isolate the purposes of your analysis, and what the racial what racial discourses emerge there. Um, and so, if you could illustrate uh, with uh, with Abs- with this particular chapter, you know the the problem of reliability, which you just explained.
1: Um. Yes, it's, it's what, what I meant by degrees of, of reliability meant that this is a polyphonic novel. It has several um, narrators, and all of them have their point of view on the same story, and they are telling and piecing it out together. Um, including many contradictions between the versions in in a situation that you can imagine um, for yourself in in many other occasions, right, as happening around you. So um, you would have, for example, Rosa, which is a narrator who is um, a a widow of the Civil War, and she is... um, very invested in in the New South creed and the idea that we we lost the war and 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 that um, the 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 plantation um, moment and the pre Civil War period was much better than it is now. Um, of course, has a view over. Um, the story that is completely different than, for example, Shreve, who is a Canadian who is talking to Quentin and who doesn't care much about the Southern context, but he just wants the story told in a manner that is logical and coherent. And so the ways in which you might trust Rosa for what she has experienced and she knows it's not exactly the same of how you would um, trust Shreve, who initially is very enthusiastic about the story and is a great teller. Um, So you engage with his story. And he also provides a solution to the enigma of why one character killed the other, why Quentin killed, uh, I w- while, um, while one character, Henry, killed um, Bon. Um, but what happens is that Streve invents parts of the story that you as a reader are not sure that is how it happened, and you don't know how he got he got you know, the information from. So in a way this creates sort of a myriad of characters who none of them could be fully reliable if you want. Uh, many people who talk about uh, who don't like the idea that there are unreliable narrations criticize the fact that well all narrators are unreliable. And to a certain extent that is true. So what Again, the importance here is not to classify whether uh, whether Rosa is an unreliable relate- narrator or not. Is to detect in, in what moments in the narrative, and for what purposes, and for what reasons, and how they are introducing aspects that what they do is create a distance between the reader and the tale as it has been. Narrated and that's that's how I, I see sometimes this principle of reliability functioning as sort of. Um, uh, modulating distance that keeps changing between the reader and the narrative, right? At, with extreme moments in which you would say, well, Shreve does say this character is Black, but he has no information about this. We know there is no information about this. So at that moment, you would say, "Who?" you would create an absolute distance and feel that it's being an unreliable narration. But on the other, at other moments, you would feel, yes, he's following this and this and that, and we know all he's saying. So you will feel closer. You will feel more bonding reliability, as Fallon would say, right? So I, I feel this, this works mm, across the, the different narratives as that certain movement between reader and, and, and narration, creating a constant tension, because you never, you never know exactly if what you're being told is certain or uncertain,
0: right? Um, and and just to follow up on that, like when the when this this narrative trust, there's this break, right? Or or the instability of of belief or trust. Uh, that, that the reader experiences as a result of these, uh, of these different uh, manners of, of narrative delivery from the various characters, especially in Absalom, Epsilon, Epsilon. When the trust breaks, um, what would you say the implications of that are? Not, not only in terms of highlighting uh, more formally the idea of the problem of reliability, but beyond that, what would you say the implications would be?
1: I think in many ways, politically, the implications mm-hmm. are huge. And that's probably the purpose of this book (laughs) um, to show that in a way, um, this moment of breaking of the truth. And this happens, for example, in Alejo Carpentier's El Reino de este Mundo. There is a crucial moment in which you have had the history or, or the experience of the, of the Haitian Revolution from the point of view of a slave. And at the moment in which he is being burnt, uh, um, you have two narratives. And you have been trusting the narrative that believes in the perspective of the voodoo. And all of a sudden, you're forced to change because you get the perspective of the French colonials who just see the body burning and while the slaves see the body sort of um, flowing away, right? Flying away. So at that moment, the the reader sort of breaks with the sort of ideological commitment or subscription that she or he has been following till that point, right? If If you believe Shreve's story, then you are assuming a racial ideology. At the moment in which you separate yourself from that, you are politically, in that case, breaking your commitment and ascription or assumption of that ideology, which at many points and for most of these novels is a desolating situation because there is no alternative. And that's one of the incredible things that these novels do, right? You are deciding that you don't believe my narrator, then you have to assume that you don't have a response to how this story ends. You don't have a response to what really happened uh, because you don't believe me. So in that sense, I think it's it's interesting because in many ways, when you do this, in and in, in our for example, in our situation, the pandemic, for example, has also many times created this feeling that you don't believe, to a certain point, all that is being said, and then, and that you're feeling, you know, how, in a way, for example, all the the pharmaceutic or um, medical industry is sort of you know making profit out of this and in a way you want to distance yourself but you don't you don't have an alternative and and that is the exact point which is a very uncomfortable point that all these novels put you in right because the novels all in a way compel you to believe in a way that is kind of complicit with racial ideologies as you might expect from in different very different degrees in very different ways from many of these writers. So it's the same point of uncertainty and feeling uncomfortable when you don't align. Mhm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um and you know, I asked about the implications because yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very clear that there there's some important political implications here and especially in a milieu where we do have a lot of misinformation and a lot of um, a lot of political discourse that misleads and and, and, and creates a lot of doubt um, in um, in the electorate um, all over the world but but i think your example of the pandemic is especially a poignant one um, in the sense that it estranges uh, people from their medical providers, it estranges them from their political representatives. Um, you know this idea of um, separating oneself or not fully buying into whatever story that is that is being um, that is being provided. And so that sort of, for me, is a nice segue uh, in talking a little bit about your fourth chapter especially with this idea of estrangement uh, and distancing, like this dis- uh, this dissonance in the narrative itself, um, where you address from the start the problem of narration <laughs> uh, with a narrative voice in the novel. Um, it's a very puzzling book, of course. And um, you write this, uh, you state that the narrator uses this estranging narrative narrative um, or under-reporting as an ideological strategy common in colonial discourse, um, which then suggests that the narrative can be read as discordant itself. And you follow this up with this brief statement requires some disentangling. And so um, if you can do a brief disentangling um, of that particular statement about about Camus' uh, Stranger um, in relation to everything that we've talked about so far.
1: Uh, yes in this chapter on albert camus l'etranger um mm-hmm. i thought it is um very interesting because uh in unreliability many times is not in in reliability, in the in in the problem of of reliability is mostly many times building not only what you say but on what you don't say Or in what you say that is covering or has implications that are not directly set but are implicit. And I will explain this in a second. But what happens in l'étranger is that um, you have a narrator that under reports, doesn't say much, doesn't express much. And then you might assume that as part of the way he narrates, but this... Keeps accumulating in a way that you feel that the narration is um, neglecting several things, and this happens when you learn and and when uh, and in when in the trial, um, the issue or the fact that um, uh, Merceau, the the narrator, has killed an Arab comes into to the surface in a way in which the narrator has hasn't you know even mentioned almost um and then in a way the whole question of um what is the what are the racial implications there uh, not only. Racial and political speaking, always. I always talk about race, not that much in terms of political or or, or of identity politics, but more on uh, on the ways in which race has been mobilized um, in this case for imperial matters. Um, so part of the of the strategy that Merceau uses um, is a sort of an a covert strategy in the sense that what camille uh, did um, and invested a lot of time doing this is in constructing a discourse of what was called uh, la Mer- mediterranée of the mediterranean and what this discourse that seems very enthusiastic about how different people in the in the different cultures in the mediterranean are and how you know they are devoted to pleasure to they have a special sensitivity Um, they have a common root etc in fact this was used in in colonial Algeria in the 1930s and especially by the school of Alger uh, a set of group of writers to sort of buttress an ideological argument which was a French colonial argument that meant that uh, Algeria had been originally sort of uh, a Latin country, and therefore um, that was, w- was where all the cultural um, Mediterranean values were coming. And then only later, Arabs came into the country and occupied it. And therefore, in a way, the French... Uh, colonial occupation was part of, you know, a recovery of the old values that we had. So in a certain way, the fact, the way in which Arabs were treated by the colonial Algeria, in which they were asked to be naturalized and sort of lose and leave their uh, Muslim um, um, religion aside, um was part to become to become pure Algerians in a way, was was built or reinforced by all this discourse of the Mediterranean, which you can find in all l'étranger. If you remember l'étranger, he's he's all the time swimming and, and and talking about you know the beaches and all that in a way that really um it, unders, it under it underreports all the implications that this discourse had for organizing racially who was the real Algerian and who not. Uh, but it's what is being said in the novel, and that you don't realize if you don't know about it in a certain way, because the Arabs as such are never addressed or object of interest or subjects of interest by the narrator and that's how you say see under reporting because the whole problem we between the problem between arabite and algerite is never there but it's developed implicitly through the discourse of the mediterranean
0: that's really remarkable actually as an analysis i um it's very inspiring, Martha. I'm, I'm, um, I really love your book. And um, so I wanted to, and, you know, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I wanted to um, address a little bit on uh, some points on chapter two, which is an analysis on James Weldon Johnson's um, the autobiography of an ex-colored man. And you locate reliability at the threshold of narrative and, and you link paratext genre and narrative in your analysis there. Um you know where you know the text itself, given its origins and how it was um, anonymously published, published uh, it, it was a, a political act in, in a sense. But then there's this threat that you locate uh, the threat of passing for white. Could you speak a little more on how the chapter views textual location of reliability and how it reinforces independ- its dependence on historical context? Um,
1: Yes, I think this is a fascinating book because it has a history, publication history, that um, makes you think about um, the idea of the versions and the idea of where to locate reliability. And so the first version of the autobiography of an ex-coloured man was published in 1912 as anonymously. And then, the title itself, the autobiography of an ex-coloured man, being this a story in the first person voice, talking about uh, how this person uh, is now passing for white, um, it's a story that could be easily be taken as true. Um, because, in a way, the editors in the preface also invited that reading, and therefore, um you could easily think, well, who is that person who is whose identity is not revealed because this is anonymous, and he's telling his own story' It reflects very much um, the context in which there were many autobiographies that we're doing and in, 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 in texts that were non fiction texts like uh, the slave narratives that were circulating as well as part of this tradition that uh, of African American literature of telling your own story uh, in the first person and and then giving um, giving account of what um what was happening with uh, African-American discrimination and the idea of passing as being a menace um, um, as seen in, in the moment of publication. But then in the second edition, what happened is that James Weldon Johnson was, uh, became a very acclaimed author in the Harlem Renaissance, and he was taken as a literary model as well for the development of African-American culture uh, in ways in which the Harlem Renaissance, as you know, reaffirmed very much and explored very much African-American culture and sort of uh, vindicated it as part of, or it as part of a um, uh, full identity that, that was um, developing its own literature. So the second publication in, in 1927, um, included the idea that this was a novel, so it it deterred it, it it declared the genre of the novel. So it was fictionalized in a certain way. And therefore you would have the fact that um, this this became be- becoming a novel um, you first would locate the narrative voice in in the text which was is also unreliable or It's questionable in terms of underlayability. You will locate that in in the realm of fiction and not that much as an autobiography in the threshold between what is fiction and what is not fiction. And so, in a way, the problem, which is a social problem of passing, gets you know um, sort of taken into back into the fiction which is a much more men- a much less menacing space than that of 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 of, of, of a text that is, non, is non-fiction, right? And so I think the paratext in that sense, the fact that, that the first was anonymously published and could be inter- interpreted as somebody who was really passing and therefore placing uh, a racial threats into the white readers... Um, which is an action that is being removed later, is something that I think interrogates where you place reliability in relation to, or the problem of reliability in relation to the readers and the social context in which is being published and read. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So... And again, I, I'm really enjoying our conversation, but I don't uh, I know you're busy and you have uh, a lot of projects going on. And speaking about those, um, you indicate in your bio that you are working on literature on global environments and especially the ocean. Um, and if you could tell us a little bit more on this work and future projects as they connect to our conversation today, or even if they don't connect to our conversation. <laughs>
1: They really connect, even if it's not apparent. We right. always connect but, but I right. can tell how they connect, and, okay. and it's interesting. So I'm working now on global ideologies. So thinking, again, about how we construct ideologies through discourse and through narratives. And uh, in this case, I've been investigating for the, for the the past few years, how we have built um, global discourses and especially um, related to spaces that we consider global. And in that sense, I'm especially focusing on the sea and narratives of the sea, which <laughs> convey the idea that or make us believe historically that the sea is a global space is a common space for everybody and is shared and that it needs to be globally managed and internationally managed and that it we need to share it um, and that it's separate in a way from the political or escapes the political bound national boundaries because it's internationally managed so thinking about that ideology I started thinking about the ocean as um, as a space because through through um, Melville's Benito Cereno, uh and another Juan Bennett's Uh, which is uh, a short story by a Spanish writer in which they use unreliability or they interrogate reliability to say it better Um, because at sea many things happen that are lost because people uh, don't survive because um, like uh, the uh, slaves that were thrown uh, overboard, um, there is a lot of margin to do things that get unregistered and untraced. And therefore, the narratives of the sea many times contain this. Problems of uncertainty, ambivalence, unreliability, um, and they, in a way, they 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 contain this interrogation about this space, um, this special space. And so, from there, I started thinking the sea as a special space and the ideologies that are being constructed about the sea. And and how they relate to especially crime, since from this example of 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 the slave traffic um, And so that's how I got into the sea criminality at sea and global ideologies that I'm working on now.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, and I, I cannot help but think that there's, um, there is perhaps like in that trajectory that there, or in, the, in that project, that there might be even space to consider even the migrant literatures, right? Where we have people using the sea as this international space, moving from border to border, um, which border crossing is also criminalized in our militar, militarized uh, borders. And so um, that would be a, an interesting, um, it's, it's a very interesting project that I look forward to learning more and reading about. Sure. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, I have really enjoyed our conversation, Marta, and thank you so much for being so generous with your time and sharing your work with me and the listeners uh, whom I thank so much for engaging with these ideas. And again, I'm just thrilled we had this conversation. Um, I think your book is crucial to literary theory and literary studies and such an important intervention. Um, Thank you again. And I look forward to all your future projects.
1: Thank you very much, Giralda. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Of course. does.
0: Thank you. Talk soon. <laughs>